hate watches covering being the Ricardos on the Sorkin streak, it's very much a cloying story you might find very annoying, but I found it very funny to watch it with my honey. So if you love it all, then watch the show and you will know it is being the Ricardos on Not A Hate Watch Show. Hey, Missy, I'm home. There we go. I am, I, you know what? I was bead. I was being, I had been, I have, I have been all parts of the Ricardos. How are you feeling, Alice, after being with the Ricardos? Um, better than I thought I was going to be. Well, you had basically two fears. I, I, I don't want to interrupt, but you, you did have two fears. And I, I was like, you were scared you were either going to love this or you are going to hate this. And either one was frightening. Yeah. It wasn't either of those. I'm somewhere in the middle. Okay. Um, this was our, this was the self-imposed punishment for doing the Sorkin streak. It's the last stop on the Sorkin streak. And I, this was the one that was like, oh, I'm going to hate watch this. I have a risk of hate watching this. Mm-hmm. And I think if I hadn't, if we hadn't done this exercise of watching all of these Sorkin things in a row... If I had just watched this cold, expecting to hate watch this, I absolutely would have hate watched it. But I think having some of the additional context that we've gained from some of the other things we've watched, specifically, I'm thinking about like rewatching Social Network, watching uh, Molly's Game, and watching uh, uh, Steve Jobs. Those those three, I think, really helped me help center what I what I could see Sorkin trying to do here, um, when it wasn't just a glorified Studio 60 episode, which it was for a lot of it. Yeah, and, and that's what I find interesting is that the movies we've covered have very much been toward the latter end on the streak itself. Now, we started with the Tom Triangle and having uh, A Few Good Men starting it out, which, of course, is the, the first seminal work by Sorkin. So it's interesting, then, that having chosen to deliberately skip The American President, a film that a lot of people love of Sorkin's um, and is a, a Michael Douglas favorite of people's, too, um, because we felt the West Wing was going to be better stop and and probably, you know, a little bit redundant on there. And my love for the West Wing and letting us double dip and go into season two uh, with Steph uh, really was, uh, is able to, like, d- d- replace that on there. What do you think of the latter-day movies coming from this as a... A, a Sorkin stan? I, well, we won't say Defender, yeah. obviously, but a stan of... Yeah, of d- Defender order. is probably the word I would use. Um, I was I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I mean, I really liked... I, I Okay, I really liked Molly's Game. I thought Steve Jobs was interesting if it really wasn't fully for me. Mm-hmm. And then this was okay. It was not... Again, I think we've talked about this a lot, and I don't want to belabor the point, but the last thing I'd really watched that Sorkin had made chronologically was The Newsroom, and that felt so much like a parody of itself, a parody of his own writing, and and the way he was writing the women characters in that show was so abysmal that I had just kind of written him off as like, oh, he turned into a crank, like a misogynist crank who doesn't know how to write women uh, anymore, and... I don't think I don't know that that's true. I I think I, this has really made me question that in a way. Um, I think the real punishment would be if I actually went back and watched the newsroom and still felt the way I did, see if I still felt the way I did then. But given that the reaction I had to the newsroom was actually very similar to the reaction a lot of people had to the newsroom, not just myself. Um, I don't think I don't think that's necessarily. Um, 
I don't know that that's necessarily something that I'm going to reconsider, but um, yeah, I, I, I find myself very surprised. I think I'd be a lot more open to watching newer things that Sorkin's working on. And, and yeah, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I know you were very excited to watch being the Ricardos. I was very excited to watch it, especially in the context of, uh, you know, this being the accumulation of it. I think I did get a little bit excited at the prospect of us getting a fired up Alice. This is everything I hate about, you know, movies about Sorkin. uh, Mm -hmm. I think I'm glad after having seen the film, I didn't get that because I I, the same as you. I liked... I'm, I'm sure I liked this film more than you simply because I think the buy-in of being a kid who was introduced to I Love Lucy when I was young and it was a seminal comedic influence on me because it really was one of the first like half-hour sitcoms or I think it was half-hour at that point, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yep. with a, f- a female protagonist. You know, yes, it was a situation where you know, she was in a domestic position, but like they had adventures and excursions outside of it, and it was funny. It was well, well written, real, wow, real well written, and really good physical comedy. Which is, this is a movie that's about comedy, just like Studio Sixty. We're sort of book ending with stops on here, uh, going back to Sorkin analyzing comedy. Um, I just found it pleasant. I thought the performances were better than I thought it was going to be. When I first saw the casting of this and saw Javier Bardem as Ricky Ricardo and Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball, I thought it was risible. I thought it was terribly miscast. I did not think they would be able to carry it. I thought that they brought too much uh actor and actress baggage in the sense of them being in other films that I'm not going to be able to remove myself and stop saying, hey, it's, you know, we come to this place, lady, you know, things like that Mm -hmm. uh, when we first hear. But I thought Nicole Kidman did a fantastic job playing Lucille Ball in in, in the sense of getting the spirit of who... I think we sense she was. Obviously, you know, this is a portrayal of her kind of behind the scenes. Um, I'm assuming based off of the three writers that were uh, portrayed within this, um, stories from, you know, them after the fact and and have some basis in it. Part of what we're going to be talking tonight and analyzing is is neither one of us were fact-checking this. We did not want to be cinema sins and sit here and go what was 100% accurate or not. I think the timing of this film... Uh, it's a lot of events happening right after the other that probably didn't, but uh, yeah, yeah. It, this that, is one of those things. It's like it's like the Steve Jobs of it, where not all of these things didn't happen the, right in this one confined period of time. Exactly. It's like oh, all these things happen, you know, just before we got to get you know the big show going. Um, uh, but it, as you said, and I'm glad that you said it, uh, this is like an extended. Um, it's him saying, okay. Because you fucks didn't like Studio 60. I'm going to take some of these themes that I wanted to talk to you about anyways in Studio 60. And I'm going to get them out here. And I'm just going to use real people that you know. And so... And and, and things that were considered funny at the time. So I don't have to write comedy. Honestly, yes. And the nice thing about it is, is I got what he was going for. Which is some of the moments in their real life. Which were sitcom moments and beats being played out. 
And that allows sort of a moment where we see Lucy later on having to pull herself out of the life that she's written for herself and having to analyze if she's really happy where she is, you know, uh, and I think a moment for me that that worked really well, but we'll, we'll get into it. So yes, I like this a lot. I wanted to love it more than I did. I'm going to be honest. It started to drag a bit toward the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, and especially when I realized that, oh, this film does have a climax and the climax is going to be, will the show be able to record because Lucy, you know, uh, checked uh, the communist yeah. party thing. And of course, yeah, I that, the they really... is, well, yeah, it could, I know it goes on. Like, that's not really tension. So then it was just sort of I like, mean, let's get to it, let's get to it, let's get to it. Yeah, they're, they're, they they really did kind of bury that. Like, they introduced it in a very big way at the top. But it, it's it's one of the, like, runners that they just keep downplaying it over and over again. Like, and It hasn't hit the trades. It hasn't hit the trades. No one's talking about this. Right. Of course, you know, right. well, it's going to come right. up then. Like, the fact that you're yeah, making this video about it. And 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 while they had some of the other plots going, especially the plot with um with Vivian, I, I that was the part where I I definitely had the thought, why does this movie exist? Why like why like what inspired this? And then when it, when the communism subplot came back, that was when I realized, oh okay, this is why this movie existed. But they he really did jam in a lot of stuff in there. To me. It felt like if I was asked to write a script, it feels like what I would do with some of my instincts, which is because I know all of these facts about these people, like, oh, William Farley was a drunk, and him and he and Vivian um, used to just, like, hurl insults at each other all the time. So, like, I'm going to make these my, my – we're going to make them the real comic reliefs, you know, of our movie and have them be our friend and Ethel, you know, partner. And it was great, you know. And Vivian really did try to lose weight, so we'll, we'll put that part in there. You know, making it be this sort of Machiavellian – Lucy thing where she's like, you know, trying to secretly, you know, more or less force feed food down Vivian's throat because she thinks that a plumper Vivian is is that. I think there's some basis in truth of the talks of being that, but obviously it didn't go out like a sitcom where they tried to trick her into eating, you know, food and things like that. What, um, what knowledge of I Love Lucy, and I guess also just Lucy Lucy and Desi and them as an item, like, what did you know about before watching this film? Hmm. Uh, so I've, I watched I Love Lucy as a kid on, like, Nick at Night. Um, I, I knew a little bit about Lucy and Desi. I knew that Desi was extremely patriotic and that in a lot of ways, he was really the force behind the two of them. Although, like no one, no one questions Lucille Ball's comedic talent or her acting skills or anything along those lines. It was definitely one of those things where she was very revered, and I feel like I had seen scenes from *Live Love Lucy* in other things, like in *Pretty Woman*, where they're watching the grape stomping mm -hmm. scene, things like that. Um, but I wouldn't say I was that familiar with it. And then, and then the events of the the events that happened during the course of this movie. I was not familiar with it at all. Okay. So they, that's the interesting part that I was um, curious about. I, as we sort of peeked a window into with Studio 60, I am broadly fascinated by the HUAC situation, the House Un-American Activities Committee, mm -hmm. uh, headed by Joseph McCarthy, the drunk, um, insane person from Wisconsin, who decided that everyone was a secret communist and a witch and 
um, got a little bit of power because he did catch some people within it. And then Congress gave him in a communist scare because it was post-World War II and they wanted to drum up nationalist American support to help defeat communism and the spread of it. Uh, willingly gave him the keys to a car that he crashed uh, into Hollywood. And in the Studio 60 setup, there was a writer who comes in and uh, was part uh, was blacklisted. Um, was yep. one of the people who was named as a member of, of the Communist Party or Communist Activities, um, which is a similar situation to what Lucy went through. Now, they allude mm -hmm. to what I wish we would have seen, which is the actual committee, her being brought in and questioned and all of that. That all has already happened in the course of the film, which right. I thought... That that's that's interesting to me. Like you should you know how to write courtroom stuff. Like I, I want to see or that courtroom, but even if it's procedural, like you like something that Sorkin's good is taking procedural stuff that is very mm -hmm. boring and bland and breaking it down in a way that makes it more yeah. engaging. Um, so I was a little disappointed that that just sort of like had happened and it's just the press. But this is a story about the relationship between people, who they are, and who they are to the press to their fans to america itself mm -hmm. you know to a nation yeah um and also a sort of like peak and reminder of of when tv like the advent of tv and and how this concern about what's being aired is not something that's new there's always been this force of what can mm -hmm. we get away with? What can we put on the air? What is progressive or not? You can't say the word pregnant. Oh, the Philip Morris will never let them say the word pregnant. And CBS will never let them say pregnant. You know, you lose, can't have Lucy yep. be pregnant on here. That kind of thing. Um, did you think Lucy was funny growing up? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I, I think I had a hard time forming a deep attachment to a lot of those because it felt, I think, it being black and white and it being something that I was told was very funny. Like, I... I, I've, I when I have watched I Love Lucy, I have found it very funny. I don't know that I find it as funny as the people who watch it in the day, um, necessarily. But I think that's just the the changing of, of standards and things, that, and that happens. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. Um, it was interesting you mentioned the House um, of Un-American Activities Committee because, one, that is also something that Sorkin likes to throw references into in all of his work. Um, it also came up, it also got mentioned a few times in the two seasons of The West Wing we watched. Mm -hmm. I think it even got mentioned during Molly's game at some point. I believe um, so, because I think yeah. just during the talking about the government going after people, you know, situation. Yes. Um, but it also had an interesting tie-in for me, because it's also, it's also name-checked and referenced in Carol 2015, oh, a movie that I've watched 38 yes. times, which also features Jake Lacey, who plays one of the writers in Being the Ricardos. He played Richard, uh, Therese's somewhat boyfriend, in the in in Carol, and okay. I thought it was really interesting because they they also like his character is also one of the ones talking about the House of Un-American Activities Committee in that movie as well. Uh, you know what? They saw him do one, and it was like, you know what? I can do this in the other. I'm also just realizing. In Molly's game, there is a very overt reference to it in the fact that they talk about the Crucible, which was an allegorical play written specifically about the McCarthy hearings. And so oh, okay. that is... I, just I was not aware of that. Yeah, it was a, a secret... Uh, a HUAC was there the entire time in that film. Um, yeah, that is it is interesting. I, and I think it's very influential to writers 
And I'm sure to someone like Sorkin, who went to theater school. And I'm sure was taught by people who did theater at the time during mm-hmm. uh, HUAC. And the reason why theater is so important to the situation is this. HUAC was aimed at Hollywood. Now, Hollywood in the time, as it does sometimes now, unfortunately, also meant Jews. And it was part of the anti-Semitism. Yep. And so yes. that was also because Hollywood was founded on the power of Jewish influence because Christians thought it was prudish and it was acting and it was whorish and it was beneath them. So good Christian people didn't go out and do theater. And so thus it was, you know, people of the Jewish faith that felt fine about this. And so that's how they got it. And so then all of a sudden, oh no, they have money, they have influence and anyone that's not white and Christian like us, we can't have. And so that is really what they were going after and artists of color. They weren't going after communists. Communists just meant black, gay, Jew. I mean, again, people of any color, but you know, specifically at that time because of segregation and racism, it was targeting mm-hmm. black people. And so yep. that those writers and those people were teaching the next generation. And that is ingrained within it. And you know, those things were then put into the media that we have now and are watching it. It, it is it's a traumatic period that affected American art for a while. And theater was where a lot of these people who were blacklisted from Hollywood were able to go. They went to Broadway. They went to regional theaters. They were able to get work there. People, because they weren't a part of these, the, the parts that were being uh, targeted, you know, specifically by mm-hmm. um, it. Because they were worried about the content coming out of Hollywood because people like Lucy Ball were going to every American home. And you, you stopped and talked about those things. So yeah, it just is like, it, 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 it yeah, writers it live this. Especially, I think, Aaron Sorkin, who I think what we've, what we've seen and what we can, we I feel confident saying, having now done this sort of comprehensive survey of his work, is deeply bought into the idea of America, is yes. very patriotic, mm-hmm. not in the jingoistic um, country music Republican sense, but in the idea that this is a great country and, and believes it. And mm-hmm. is also very much feels like one of the things America has brought to the world is broadcasting and television yes. and comedy. Yes. And and that is an institution that must be protected. I think if you look at both, um, I mean, this comes up in Sports Night. It, it very much comes up in Studio 60. They talk about it a lot in, in the West Wing and the newsroom and then now here as well. Um, it's just like, it's, it's like, you know, Aaron Sorkin had one thought and then just made it into an entire body of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it is interesting that and again, because it did happen to Lucy Ball, one of the most, not one of the most, the most famous person in America, besides the president, you know, like mm-hmm. at the time, at the yeah. time, and most certainly also a woman who was revered. And so that was scary, too. So it was an easy mm-hmm. target to go after her. And another reason why people did circle her to kind of protect her because she was a big asset and they didn't want to lose that because some crazy drunk senator from Wisconsin was throwing, you know, the name communist around. I loved the Walter Winchell uh, name drop, a radio commentator who, again, was very influential at the time, Um, someone who I'm sure Sorkin, I don't think probably would have grown up having heard the broadcast, but having, you know, been around people who heard those broadcasts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, power of media. But that's the one overarching arch that we have sort of through the film is specifically Lucy and the investigation on there. And also with Ricky uh, or Ricky Desi, the fact that he is from Cuba 
and mm-hmm. you know oh is he communist because of there despite the fact that he uh his family was like killed during the bolshevik uh revolution there and he uh was like ran and that's why he came to america and as, as we talked about is very much was loved america and was part of the driving force behind you know lucy and desi being the american couple like Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just taking a second to think about this. I know it's sort of addressed in it, but it is sort of, it is wild that at one point, like the most, uh, the most American you could be was represented by a multiracial couple. Like, mm-hmm. I never really thought about that fact of it. Like in the sense of I've always yeah. just accepted that it's Lucy and Desi. I, n- I never mm-hmm. had to stop and think about how representative that was of it. But this film did bring mm-hmm. that to the forefront of like, yeah, even yeah. that aspect was, was thriving yeah, and it, too. And you think about the times when it was airing, the times how society was changing, mm-hmm. the integration of, um, you know, Hispanic, um, Latin, uh, people of color, black people into American society, the idea of interracial relationships, mm-hmm. the idea of America as a melting pot really taking hold. Um, it, it it probably felt groundbreaking in a way that it doesn't today necessarily, yeah. but... Hundred percent. Um. So the other side plot that, it, or one of the other threads that we have through here, is the relationship between Desi and Lucy and their personal lives, and we see mm-hmm. their relationship develop. Yes, we see the first time they meet. Um, on a set of a movie where Desi is playing to a bunch of, of, of swooning young women mm-hmm. and then Lucy comes in and kind of knocks his socks off. We get a lot of intercuts into their relationship while they, like after they were married, but before the show started when Lucy was still acting in movies, then, and then a bunch of their domestic life as well. And a bunch of their fights and things. Um, it was really interesting. I, I was, I thought the use of flashback was interesting. I think if I wanted to cut something out of the movie, though, mm-hmm. that might have been the first thing to go. Mm-hmm. I definitely had the feeling when we had the multiple scenes at the club where Desi's performing, that felt a little gratuitous to me. Like, yeah, you had to you had to make sure you put in a performance scene so we knew that Javier Bardem was really playing Desi Arnaz correctly. Yeah, I didn't really understand the purpose of that other than, again, just to show off that that he can do it. It didn't like. I don't think anyone would have questioned Desi being a band leader or being very musical in this role, because again, he's based on a real person. Yes. Yeah. And and yeah. And I think the uh, well, one thing that I, I I took a note of early on, which is at some point Sorkin thought to himself, "I need to have Desi and Lucy fuck. I need to have a sex scene. We need to see them fucking." so that everyone knows how much they were fighting and fucking. And then thinking about that fact, when it rolled around to the credits and executive producer Desi Arnaz Jr. and Lucy, Lucy Arnaz popped up on there. And I'm like, ah, yes. They thumbs up and approved. Ah, yes, the fucking script. The, yeah, that's exactly how my parents were. We, we Hooray. Um, that, very hot sexy. Very, very oh, hot yes. sexy. Um, and uh, yeah, you're right. They have like chemistry right away. And it's noticeable, palpable to everyone else. And... They talk early on with the interview with the part of which is explained part of this the setup of this is that there are three writers that are being interviewed and they are telling stories of Lucy and Desi throughout this and they're sort of our narrative structure. It's it's a loose 
it's, it's loose. I, I you could have cut that too, to be honest. I don't think yeah, you know, I agree. It, it, it felt a little, I, I, I think, what, yeah, and I think what we've seen from Sorkin's movie scripts so far is like Social Network is a deposition. Um, Molly's Game is a deposition. Steve Jobs is three points in time. Mm -hmm. This is three interviews, which are basically depositions and three points in time. Yes. So um, he always feels like he needs to wrap a frame around this. And I and I actually think in this case, it didn't need it. I 100% agree. I also just want to say I really did not think the the actress who played the older version of the Aaliyah Shawkat character, um, I think her name was Martha, she did not look like Aaliyah Shawkat at all. I, was, I did not believe that was the same, meant to be the same woman. And I got distracted because that is legendary actress Linda Lavin playing the writer. So when she popped on and it's like, blah, 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 writer, I was like, oh, so they didn't get the writers. They just got people to play the writers. I'm like, yes. And, and they felt like they were performers performing. I Those were the weakest like performances for me as well, were these actors playing writers, retelling the stories from interviews that they must have given about being writers on the show. Uh, so for me, it was just like, okay, we get it. But it does put in the context of these are coming from people who were in the room when these things happened. People who were at Desilu Studios, who um, were part of the writing staff um, of everything that was going on there. Uh, and they detail, you know, the vibe and fucking that was happening. Um, yeah. And and we get within the, the timeline jumps that we have in here, um, the our, our sort of we'll call ground timeline where it is a countdown clock. We have our countdown clock timeline to, uh, to showtime. We get another Sorkin piece that's about showtime. I've talked about this before. Theater shows about theaters and it's opening day. It's the big day. We're putting on a show mm -hmm. like Sorkin is the king of them. And it's, it's not, it, it, we'll, we'll fix it, but, but we can't fix it until it, it's Friday. Friday is tomorrow. Exactly. We have to, um, I, I noted that they uh, went in at the studio at 2 a.m. which is something we'll cover the fixing of the opening and mm -hmm. uh, I was like ah he needs and you get, you get there at 2 a.m. so you can be around for your 3 a.m. miracle you gotta get there early to let the 3 a.m. miracle happen at that point um, and uh, yeah so so they have been married for a while they've already had uh, Lucy Lucille their first uh, uh, child or daughter who Happen. It's not, I don't remember the exact uh, point of it, but she was pregnant when it wasn't on the air, and so uh, it wasn't an issue at that time. But now she is pregnant while the show's going on, while this communism uh, thing is happening. And the reason we get the background for the personal life aspect is to wrap around the fact that um, in real life, Desi Arnaz was a huge philanderer. He was notoriously unfaithful to Lucy throughout the, I believe their entire marriage. Um, he was insistent that he did it. You know, it was very much the relationship they had in here mm -hmm. where he was insistent and played the good husband, you know, and, and was very much um, good about the, they were both very good about the image control of their marriage, which I think is why it was a great shock to people when they separated in real life. Uh, I believe not long after um, the, their success with the show. Uh, and, and I believe according to the, According to the, the end card, they separated immediately the morning after their final performance together. Yes, exactly. I believe that they had um, a, uh, a follow-up TV show to I Love Lucy, which is like a variety hour. And I believe that they uh, that wrapped up and they were like, okay, and we're done. 
um, which is also just interesting because you have two people who are the founder of a production company, which at that point, you know, was working on other things. Uh, the, the other big Desilu production that is very relevant to, to my proceedings is, of course, Star Trek uh, came out of Desilu. And so uh, my Red Shards journey uh, frequently is talking about the Desilu Studios or, or some people every once in a while who are from Desilu uh, have a drop-in appearance from it. Um, but yeah, having their own production company was also a huge deal at the time because you had a woman who was a industry head, you know, as well. She wasn't just, uh, you're just an actress, um, you know, she, she was a part of a production thing as well. They don't really get into that into the film. That's just something that in, in terms of, again, us talking about the context of who Lucy was, you know, is it, it's, it's just wild. It is, it is really wild that she existed in the world that she did in such a man's world, which we see time and time again in this film, where it's just a bunch of men in suits making decisions. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to how, I think, like, magnetic her personality is, like, how charismatic she was, how funny she was. Like, men will rule the world, but if, if, if giving power to a woman will make m men money, they will do it. And I think the, the the magnitude of her success speaks to the magnitude of her talent and 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 what she was able to bring that they were a, that she was afforded this much power. Mm -hmm. Wait, when you're saying those words, you're making those funny faces and you're uh, you're doing all that those those little joke bits and stuff. What are you doing that for? Well, because it gets a reaction from the audience, helps my performance. Oh well, would you like to do that on one of our picture boxes here? We can do that for you. Yeah, I I. Uh, the the fact dropping that gets put in this film is sometimes very clumsily handled. I, I think that's maybe, mm -hmm. well, the nerdy theater nerd part of me, TV nerd part of me, loves them being in there. It did just feel every once in a while someone was just like, had, had like dropped a Wikipedia fact, you know, real quickly in here mm -hmm. to get it in there. Uh, uh, you know, they were talking, I think, you know, especially with De uh, sometimes with Desi, you know, it's like, do you know, you know, Desi, and he's the man that runs it, and he does this, and he invented the camera system, the three, the three camera system, and the way that the audience is able to see in the studio. They basically built this entire thing was Desi's and from his mind, which is true. He did. He revolutionized television by making the format that is still used to this day to film most live in front of the studio audience materials. Um... But again, it just was dropped in there. A person, you know, someone else was dropping that and talking about them because Sorkin loves people who are good at their jobs and loving listing, you know, people's accomplishments or specifics. Yep. So great way to get that in there. But those moments, I think, for me, are weren't Sorkin at his best, which is probably why this was a more middling film, is that it, he's passionate about the subject. So the writing and the information is there, and it's good. It just is sometimes, like... I was thinking this in terms of Sorkinisms. It's like when you're when you go and get vanilla ice cream and then you eat vanilla ice cream, you're like, oh, I guess this is just vanilla ice cream. But you can't be mad because you went in and ordered vanilla. It's like, I know what I'm getting with Sorkin. So I know a lot of times the tropes I'm going to expect from it. But every once in a while, you're like, I wish this was just a little bit more than the vanilla. But I can't be like mad that I got that. So yeah, this was like him when it was just like a little more bland around the, the edges. It didn't have as much flavor. Yeah, I agree. I think... Again, it comes into the he's coming up against the severity of the of the material. Mm -hmm. I think in something like the West Wing or A Few Good Men or even Molly's Game, these these things he's describing are very crucial and important to the individual's life. Or in the case of the West Wing, 
you know, nominally crucial for the government and the well-being of the country. Whereas things like Studio 60, even things like being the Ricardos, they are just trying to make a funny TV show. And mm. I understand that there are all these other political and and um, sort of political, not political, but um, um, behind the scenes um, consequences to what they're doing on the show. Like the show has to be funny so that, you know, Lucy can keep her job. But at the same time, it just it rings a little hollow compared to we have to solve this crisis for the president to save the world. Yeah, exactly. It's the same problem you run into when you're dealing with, like, Studio 60. You are dealing with the material where you, you can't treat it as, like, a life-threatening life. I mean, they do a good job of setting up the stakes, because you're right. She, she puts it in itself in a good monologue where she basically is like, I have to go out and do all of these things to set up the fact that I go out in front of an audience and have to be the funniest every single night. For 22 minutes straight, I have to be on, and I have to be perfect, mm -hmm. and I have to get it just right. And so, yes, we are going to run, you know, this scene until it feels good uh, and everything like that. Um, so, so, yeah, wrapped around also all of these, these things with the opening night is the opening scene, the dinner table. And Fred and Ethel are going to come over and have dinner after they had a big fight, and they're going to force Fred and Ethel um to you know stage it so that they're together and that they um uh have to you know make up and everything like that you know I, they don't, we don't really actually see very much of the episode we see a lot of the beginning of the episode <laughs> over and over mm -hmm. um well and, and and the we we do see the we do see the produced version of the fight that they choreograph at two in the morning yes that like is true. The, the, the 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 table scene where they're sitting in the same chair and they and um Lucy basically just kind of re-choreographs the entire um, process of the two of them sitting in the same chair in order to make sure that it's the funniest. Um, I, I was really interested in what you thought about Lucy being this sort of comic genius and her being able to see the comedy, which then often played out in recreations of the episodes. It happens when they're talking about the her going to a winery and stomping grapes. It happens with the it happens with the um her with with the restaging of the dinner scene it happens at the beginning where, where she's trying to figure out what to do with the flowers um i don't know how i felt about it so i'm curious how did you feel about lucia ball being a comedic genius who, who can zone out and discover the funniest thing that can happen she's not zoning out though she's focusing she's imagining so here so this is okay i do not speak for every creative person i do not speak for every actor i do not speak for every director i speak for missy i highly connected with those moments because that is the type of visual memory that I have as well. When I'm reading a script, it is coming alive off the page and I'm picturing it in my head. When I'm directing something, when I read it, I usually have a rough idea of a flow of a give and take energy that this is wobbly until you get your actors in there and it settles out. But once I have my actors especially, and once I have a rough idea of the set, and we get things moving. I can stop and hear an actor deliver a line or hear a moment and have that moment of, let's stop for a second. Can we redo this? Something's not working. And I've had those moments of picturing and having an actor maybe give a suggestion or I'm just giving a suggestion and being like, if I do this, then this, then this. And you're picturing it in your head. You're anticipating where is the audience, where is the audience going to laugh at this? Where's the beat that they're going to find it funny? What's your next moment? How you can crest into your next laugh? Like you are anticipating 
and trying to conduct the audience as much as you are trying to conduct the actors themselves to use a Sorkinism uh, from Steve Jobs where he talks about what is the job of a conductor. Uh, I don't think that is unrealistic. It is obviously, I'm sure, heightened. I don't know if these moments were literally these these things where Lucy would just be sitting going there and be like, no, no, well, yes, this, be, no. But I've had actors have that instinct in the moment for things where they realize something isn't working. Can I try this and do it? And then you see it, you feel the beat, even you know, without an audience, you're like, yes, no, this, this flows better. Yes, whatever it is, you know that it's funnier. There, it is a musicality to comedy. They, they talk about this, I think, in, in uh, the movie even, a little bit. Um, but comedy as music, you'll hear that a lot from comedians and uh, people talking about the, the nature of, of what is comedy itself. And there is a cadence to it. So I, I totally bought it in. And, and I believe that Lucy could have been one of those types of people. Now, what I do think is we got a creative vision into how Sorkin pictures things. And the way yeah, that he pictured yeah. it made me realize, oh, he absolutely is a theater person. Because that seems like a theater thing you would do, is picturing the blocking and stuff on a set like that. Even to the fact where, again, the contrivance of when they had their backs to the audience. When I saw that at first, I'm like, that's terrible blocking. You don't have your backs to the audience. You want to have their faces. You want to be able to see their reactions. So when that's the first thing that Lucy fixes, I was like, oh, okay. So like he did that on purpose to make a point of being able to teach the audience something about why decisions are made. Because maybe the audience has been like, well, how come we don't, you know, well, how come everyone is always facing this direction in, you know, comedies and like it, and a movie thing? You know, it's weird that there's never people sitting on this side of the table and stuff. It's like, yeah, because yeah, it doesn't make sense because their back would be to you, you know. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, I, I know I, I'm sorry I'm rambling, but it's just because I, I didn't realize how much I loved it until I had to stop and think about it. I mean that that's 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 really great, I, and I agree a hundred percent. I think the th the part that maybe felt hollow to me was it felt like Sorkin was kind of shoehorning Lucy into his tortured genius box that that, that mm. uh, where also who also lives there is Steve Jobs and Matt Albee and okay, yes, um, well, uh, probably probably um um Jeremy Zuckerberg, um Jeremy from Sports Night, the idea that. There's one way to be really smart and really come up with ideas like this, and and like again, it just sort of feels like sometimes he just writes the same character with the with the names, the labels sanded off. I feel like I'm going okay. Since we're at the end of the Sorkin streak, I think we can also sort of get into Sorkin himself. I think we can sort of do a break, you know, our breaking down of Sorkin, a be being the Sorkin, as it were. And we're doing, you know, the movie of, of his life and the beats and stuff like that. It's very clear from the output of his work that he is an individual that needs to be put in a pressure cooker situation that feels that the, like, stress or the induction of, like, a sense or some sort of sensation, you know, stress being it, is, is a creative, like, way where things will pop and snap a crack. And that is true. You can have, like, you know... Ideas do come when you are forced to because you're in a stressful situation and a deadline is approaching. It is a countdown. And so we are just going to come up with an idea because we need to. And all of a sudden, this thing comes from in the back of your head is genius. It might be a Lucy moment where, you know, you're maybe you're not actively thinking about it all the time. But in the back of your head, you're solving the problem. You're living through your day. And then when you sit down and do it, 
you've got it figured out because, okay, I have been thinking about this all the time and I knew the, the answer the whole time to what needs to happen. And, you know, I just need to get other people to see my vision. Um, maybe through calling them at 2 a.m., you know, whatever. Uh, don't ever call me at 2 a.m. to do a podcast recording, please. You know, I, I, if we're already up, that's fine, but don't call me. I was gonna say we we literally did a podcast yeah, because we were at two forty five in the morning. We were up that late already, but I, you didn't call me. That's what I'm saying. You didn't wake me in the middle of the night to be like, "It's an emergency. We have to do an emergency podcast." But well, I wanted to run over the opening of the show before we did it. Um, yes, and uh, I I I am like you, where you, I know you've expressed this before, and we've we've touched on the tortured genius or the person who's a creative head who just needs to get everyone to like think their way and Mm -hmm. you know it puts people is an asshole to people and puts people situations because it creates the environment and creates the conditions that will make things work you know being a dick being an asshole is just as effective as being nice and asking polite in certain ways because it's all it's yin yang it's centralism it's all in the middle it all Mm -hmm. meets in the middle and it equalizes and blobs like that um you see that a bit with the writers in this. They're very like negging and 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 kind of pecking at each other, which I'm sure in comedy rooms probably is the reality because everyone wants to be funny and everyone's a bit of an asshole, yeah. and so you are just ripping everyone all the time. Um, you know, so it, I'm, it, it must be one of those things where that is constantly the output of his work of, is showing people in that situation because that is how he himself must feel he thrives. Or exists, um, mm-hmm. you know. Also, when he talks about needing um, to be on drugs in order to produce content at certain points, also would make yep. sense from the standpoint of if you need that adrenaline rush and you're super stressed, but you've been doing this for a while, and you and and stress your stress baseline is now so high that you're not getting a high from being stressed anymore. And so you have yeah, to no, keep... no one can write 90 minutes of live TV a week. You'll burn out. Yes, it, yes, exactly. You're pushing, pushing, pushing until you burn out. I have gotten burnout from doing some shows before because I've been trying to push too much to do it. So I understand what, the, you know, uh, uh, there was a time where I was opening a play and doing caucus stuff and moving into a house. Too many things at once. And the stress, you know, really did cause some bad burnout. Thankfully, we had a pandemic right afterwards. So I had all the time in the world to recharge and creatively inspire. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, but yeah, um, what what did you think of we we talked a bit about um, Lucy and Izzy. What did you think of of Fred and Ethel and of the writers and and our our hmm. suits and some of the ancillary characters that we have written in here? Sure, I thought I the focus on the plots between the writers and Lucy and Desi and. The, the the big thing between the actors who played Ethel uh, Vivian and and Lucy with with regard to her weight and her and and, and her character B- both of those felt were were very interesting and I think if if this had been a uh, like six part or a 12 part mini series each one of those would have been their own episode but f- in the scope of the movie felt a little extraneous i i liked it though i think like we like we talked about i think i would have cut more of the flashback pieces or i would have tried to tie things more strongly to the the communism piece but um individually i liked all of those strands um i will say the casting especially for the writers i was shocked at the cast that they had um alia shawkat tony hale um i knew about i knew about jk simmons um 
and uh, Jake Lacey as well, who plays the other writer. Um, really, just kind of like murderers row of, of, of character actors. I, I thought Aaliyah Shawkat was great, great in her role because she she, she really is uh, as Madeline playing to the fact that she's the only woman on staff, and Lucy looks to her uh, specifically for help and support. While she also is playing a game where she has to be one of the guys in the room, um, I I did kind of I don't know. There's this thing where sometimes actors don't look like they like people didn't look like that in that time period. Oh, um, the yeah. the one that we always the one that we always talk about is Carrie Brownstein in Carol. Carrie Brownstein does not look like a character in Carol. Mm-hmm. I, like if there were women who if there were women who looked like Carrie Brownstein in the 1950s, they have never been depicted on film before. Um, and I think Leah Shawkat, unfortunately, is the same. She just has such like maybe it's just because of the other roles she's been in, but she has such a like modern looking face that. I, I had a hard time believing her as a 1950s woman, but I thought the her performance was excellent, and I really liked the interplay between her and Lucy, her and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I've had this realization where I'm having to accept people that are my or closer to our age are playing character actors now and are doing stuff where it's period dramas, and I, ha- and, and I have to be like, oh, yes, I can accept you in these roles other than just being like, what's Baby from Arrested Development doing in this in this period outfit? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but you're right. Yeah. I think she did a really she, good job with she, the comedy. Yeah, she totally makes sense as a millennial in Brooklyn looking for her lost friend and talking about Hot Baby, the hot sauce just for babies. Mm-hmm. She does not look like a, a 1950s writer in a writer's room, but that's me. Um, there was one scene that I thought was... I, I again, once again, noticed a lot of Sorkinisms. The scene where Lucy is insistently reading the article about Desi cheating on her to Vivian while Vivian is protesting. The fact that she, she just keeps, you know, she keeps reading, she keeps reading, and then she's hammering lines in the thing. Mm-hmm. That is, that is very much like I think that's been everything we've watched. Yeah, there's the uh, I believe the wait for it moment. It, it harkens back to the radio. They're listening to it, and it's like the conservative DJ in the West Wing. And he's like, yes. you know, he's going off on it. Uh, and then it's like, no, uh, that's not what we're waiting for. That's not the bad news. That's not the bad news. There it is. That's what the bad news is. Uh, be on there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're right. It, uh, that's this uh, again. I, I at a certain point, what I realized and maybe this is where I need to also I should have said this earlier. This felt like not as much a movie as it felt like a filmed play. Like the elements that you have in here in the sense of the way that it's structured and sort of the mechanisms that we're doing, the sets that we're going between, feels like this is like a a theatrical script that was just too big to be done as a play. And so therefore it, you know, it, it, it was on here, but just the, the scene structure, the way that the two-handers, um, are, scenes are handled, everything. I, I think I just felt like, yeah, this this is the way that you would get a lot of this information into a play quickly. Because you got to drop those facts. you got to keep your audience put in. you got to make sure they know the information. But the emotional beats are something that feel more important when you're confined to, like, if I was an audience member in the audience and I'm waiting for the show, so like the actors on stage are running around panicking because they're getting ready for the rehearsal on the set. And I'm seeing Fred and Ethel live 
having to practice the bumps and Lucy being there. If I'm seeing this live and I'm the audience member, so I'm not just the audience for their private lives, I'm also waiting, anticipating these things. If I'm in the confines of a theater where this is my story and with everyone else, and even though we know some of this stuff and we're gonna like, yeah, hooray at the end, I'd probably be clapping with everyone else when fucking J. Andrew Hoover calls in at the end as a literal deus ex, deus ex machina. It just solves all the problem by saying, guess what? We've cleared Lucy and she's not a communist. We can confirm I'm J. Edgar Hoover. Bye. Um, you know, it, I feel like that to me, the stakes of that in a theater would feel grander than it did to me at home watching it. Um, and I don't think a movie theater, I mean like a, like a theater theater, but it's still even a movie theater. Like, you know, that sort of conceit would play better to me than if I'm just at home watching this play out within a, a fairly long two hour what 10 minute uh 15 minutes i know there's credits and stuff but it was a uh not not a not a svelte movie 131 minutes yeah yeah, yeah no I, I i agree um side side note how do we get roles as extras in 1950s set things because i would just love to get put in those clothes and sit there and laugh in the audience oh God, i would love that right i mean I'd be too, i may be too expressive for a background person but like I'll, I would look good out of time and place. If 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 in the unlikely event this podcast blows up and you are a film director, please please cast us as background actors. Yes, we will. In we will be in your one of these scenes. We will just sit there. We. I I I will wear a wig. I will wear a girdle. Mm -hmm. I will I will do whatever it takes. I can play men. I can play women. I will be flex with 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 all of you. Um. Um. But yeah, no. I think going back to your going back to your your main point there, I I agree. I think it. Maybe it's just because this movie is so small stakes mm -hmm. in terms of it. You could, you, this could have been a, a potentially a book for a play, right? Yeah. And the fact that it is a movie, there's very little that's added to it that's extra. Like, they don't really take advantage of the fact that it's a movie necessarily. I would be less shocked that this was nominated for Emmys. Than Oscars. I think that's where I'm kind of like also wrapping my head around like, you know, I mean, I don't, I think the performances that were nominated, J.K. Simmons and uh, Nicole, Kidman, Nicole Kidman as uh, Lucille are probably the more deserved out of them. Uh, I had a little issue with Javier Bardem as, um, as Desi only because he really kind of came in as Javier and I think it's just he has a gravitas with him that Maybe it's just the bad sound recording of the time, but I always felt that like uh, Desi and and uh, Ricky within the show were had more trouble and were like had a higher voice and was much more up yes. there. Yeah, and no, stuff. I agree. So, so yeah. that to me, once when again when I accepted that these these are not literal Lucille and Desi, they are archetypes Lucy Lucy and Desi that are in this you know playing these parts to to represent our. Uh, you know, our crucible that is within, you know, uh, Sorkin here. He's doing his crucible with, with Lucy and, and Desi uh, uh, as archetypes. Yeah, I I didn't like Javier Bardem's... Like, I like I liked the performance, I guess. I didn't... I, I really had trouble with the accent. I really did. It really bothered me. Um, it also... With with Nicole Kidman as as Lucille Ball, I really did feel like it was just a Nicole Kidman character and not necessarily she was trying to do a one for one Lucille Ball. And I think yes. over the course of the movie, I I felt 
harder and harder not to just see Nicole Kidman sitting there instead of it being Lucille Ball. Like, like whatever attachment I had to Lucille Ball kept, like, getting further and further away. I wrote this note in the first part of the movie, especially the parts where they were playing the younger versions of themselves. One, they did incredible makeup on Nicole Kidman. It looked like she almost as if they de-aged her, but I think it, I don't think it was. I think it was just makeup. I, um, I was wondering, like, did she get plastic surgery and I'm only just noticing, or is the makeup so intricate that like I think it's that it's like because I'm like especially and then I looked at the AMC ad and I'm like oh no this is like makeup that's being done or as you said de-aging something like they're really putting a lot of work yeah. into this yeah and 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 that was one but but especially the part where they were flashing back to when they first met and stuff I I wrote the note this feels like my parents are re- reenacting a story almost like there's a sense of like out of bodiness that I was getting from it. See, and that to me is like the theatrical nature, which is my suspension of disbelief. Where if you had two, if the two actors that are playing modern day, you know, in their forties, Lucy and Desi during the show came on and did flashback scenes when they're in their twenties or whatever, or early thirties, you know, you just accept it. Cause you're like, yeah, they're the same actors. We can't get them. We can't make them younger, you know. If they, maybe they would cast them younger, but if they're playing, we would just accept the conceit that yes, they're playing the younger versions of themselves and they're playing the older versions of themselves. So you know, I get that within the movie, but we're so used to like Hollywood magic and everything having to be so pristine and like the de aging technology that I appreciated it for the most part that they were relying on actual makeup uh, work being done to to make them look about it, even though. There was a lot of uncanny valley stuff going on with their faces and voices, um, especially Nicole Kidman, because there were mo- there were some moments I can't I can't describe what she did, but there was something about a way she would sort of uh, with her voice every once in a while, which was really Lucy, and she nailed. I realize most of the time I think about Lucy, I think about her being loud and brash because she's on public appearances or she's in her character, and I'm like, oh wow, she's having to play her being normal. And she's still getting Lucy out there in a really unheightened, you know, not grand thing that we're used to her being. And I'm like, that's a challenge. And she did a really good job at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I, I also will just put a side note here. Her her body in that in the one scene where she's walking around in a lingerie, oh, hot damn. Um, but it was interesting because I, I, I did look up the Wikipedia for this movie and it mentioned that initially Kate Blanchett was in talks to play yeah. Lucy and I think that would work even less well than Nicole Kidman but people people have had felt like oh Kate Blanchett would be better I don't I don't necessarily agree I'm I'm curious like because there was a lot of hubbub about the casting about this movie. Mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman was one Javier Bardem was the other I definitely see the Javier Bardem stuff I don't know that I don't know that I could think of someone else who would be more appropriate for Lucy. Maybe maybe Jessica Chastain because she's also a red. She's typically portrayed as a redhead. But um, I don't know who else I would I would have cast as Lucy. And I thought Nicole Kidman did a, did a good job. Um, I think working with the material and some of the you know limitations as they are. Yeah, it's. It was really. Good, but I also I'm just keep thinking about what we talked about. That's still the part I would cut though, is the flashback. I still would cut those parts. Oh yeah, and, yeah, and trim it down. But that does, that's to make it feel more like a movie. Again, I I don't think this script wants that, uh, and I th- I think I think we kind of want this film to also be something a little bit different than clearly what's what Sorkin wants to be because he did direct this like Molly's Game, 
This is the second thing mm-hmm. that he's yep. um that he's ever done yeah. it. Um uh I do like one of the IMDb. Actually that's not true. He actually directed another movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Oh he di- oh I didn't realize he directed that as well. Oh, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I, I who do you think so uh, Nicole Kidman is our star player. Who who would you say are the other kind of shining people within this cast? We talked a little bit um um about Aaliyah Shawcat for sure. Um yeah, I mean, I th- I think I think that the Javier Bardem performance itself of the material is good. I don't think the material is great, and I don't think he's the right person to be playing it. But in terms of delivering the lines as written, I think he like him being the the one to do it. He did he did he did a pretty good job. Um, I really like J.K. Simmons. That's that's not hard to say. He's pretty much good in anything. Um, I really did like the, even though it was a much more muted performance, and I really don't, I, I don't think they gave her a lot to do. Um, the actress who played Vivian, I thought, was also mm-hmm. very good. Yeah, that is uh, Nina uh, Arianda, uh, who I I don't was not familiar with her, but I'm familiar with this credit from for winning the Tony Award in 2012 for the play Venus in Fur, um, which is a two hander, uh, very very sexy play. Um, which was a very, like a big uh, off Broadway and then Broadway hit at the time, um, and was produced by uh, the theater company I've, I've done stuff for here uh, in town. So I'm familiar with with that script. So when I saw them, like, oh, theater person, that's a Sorkin person that he probably would have seen um, on on. Speaking, speaking of Sorkin people, the the announcer from Studio Sixty also played the radio announcer in this in the portion where Lucy was doing a radio show. The the guy. The guy who was announcing that show as well was the same person who played um, Hugh, the announcer from Studio 6. You know what's funny is I didn't make that connection, but when I saw that announcer, I'm like, that guy's voice is familiar. I'm like, why do yeah. I recognize him? And that's yeah. exactly why. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, it was surprising, though, that, that I, there weren't more. I mean, we had a Clark Gregg who was in Sports Night. Yes. Um, yes. The, the, Quo Adamus. The, Where are we the, going? The deus, the deus ex machina of that. Um, uh huh. But uh, yeah. And Andy was Andy was Andy was in the West Wing as well. I, I forget if if we if he plays he plays a Secret Service agent at some point in the oh, West Wing as well. I don't think we've gotten to that one. Uh, maybe maybe I I saw him and have forgotten him amongst the slew of character actors and actresses that are in yes. that show at any given moment. Yes, I just remember it being very funny because when he started playing Agent Coulson, it's like this guy is a billionaire who's also a Secret Service agent, and then also he runs Shield. It's like yeah. Oh no, who's the Who's the voice of Jedgar Hoover? I'm I'm looking that up real quick for my own. I, I was expect. I I have to say I was expecting him, there to be a twist where he says, "Yeah, that's just an actor I hired." Oh, yeah, it's all the theater. It's all part of the uh, like right. you said the or uh, not you said we talked about um. Oh, in Steve Jobs, how they faked it. They faked it till they 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 made it. And yes, the yeah. artifice of it all. Yeah. But uh, what I think is, I just, I just don't think that ever happened. Like I, I just, I clearly yeah, don't no, of course, that yeah, never of course, fucking happened. Yeah, uh, that there, there wasn't right. held up in that way. Like yes, they cleared her, but there was. I mean, that was just like I said. If, that's something. If, if I was in a theater audience, would make so much sense for your climax because like I need to build this to something. Um, right. And it's, I think it's if meant that to be had happened funny. in real life, think, you would have heard of it. Yeah, I think yeah. it's meant to be funny. I think some of the thing, the way that these events play out, are not meant to be like this is realistically how it happened. It's meant to be the funny way of explaining how some yeah. of these things happen. Yeah, yeah, and and to, to that point, I like I think again we saw Sorkin can write witty, funny dialogue and like sniping back and forth dialogue really well. Yes. I don't think he can write. He can't write. Set him down. Set him up. Knock him down. Jokes necessarily, but that's okay. That's not that's not his strength. 
Um, this is interesting. So the person who I will... voiced J. Edgar Hoover, I said, I can say real quickly, is is actually a stand-in for a lot of people, including a stand-in for one Mr. Rob Cordery on AD for Brady, and a stand-in for okay. Mr. J.K. Simmons, and other works. Um, I mean, he, he did kind of nail the voice. Um, I I will say Desi's whole speech at the end felt very. Sorkin monologue, Wes Mandel at top of Studio 60 yeah. style monologue, yeah. Idris Elba complaining to the other prosecutor Ooh. in Molly's game. Um, the I media, did like it they though want because. You to believe this, but you know, you believe in us, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But And I like that, but I also thought it was interesting that they don't really draw attention to this. I think you just have to notice it that. He, he was going to go out and say, she checked the wrong box. Yes. Lucy says, I didn't check the wrong yes. box. And then he finds a way to explain it without having to talk about her checking the box at yeah. all. He he didn't, he the, he was a good partner in that moment. He was able to uh, to actually meet Lisa. I, I was going to say earlier, it is fascinating that this movie is called Being the Ricardos, when really it's so clear that Lucy is the focus of all of this. And this is all filtered through like, the really like Lucy's relationship to all these things because Ricky doesn't have much of an arc in terms of like what the conflict is like his yeah that's his true. conflict is within the context of Lucy it's, it's trying to solve the Lucy problem and trying to do it in a way that doesn't remove her agency and doesn't make her seem stupid because again one of the things that we're dealing in, in here is the art meeting the artist and people thinking that Lucy herself is dim is mm-hmm. you know a ditz is, you know, all of these things that she's playing there for comedy when we know she's running a studio. She's a smart per like is a very capable uh uh actress and and knows, you know, all of these things. Is it was was a was on the way to becoming the next Rita Hayward or Julia Holiday, uh, except for the fact that they're available. And so we're gonna drop you from uh your contract. Uh which uh you know the her being 39 and and again again one of the themes like oh women in hollywood and once they're older we're gonna you know toss them to the curbside and again it's like thrown in there but it's not like we don't really deal with it that much it's sort of just thrown as like a fact Mm -hmm. like well you you know you remember how it was like this way uh you know you remember when it was like when people were pregnant and and couldn't say you know like again all these facts that just kind of have to get in here because they, because Lucy, because I love Lucy did so many firsts. It it broke so much ground. You have a lot of ground to cover as a huge nerd, as a huge nerd when you're writing your screenplay, uh, reliving your fanfic where, where Desi and Lucy fuck, I they fuck so passionately. God, God. And she's on top of him and he's on the couch and, and then she throws him back and there. Ah, and then she, and then she's in her head thinking about the sex positions and then she's blocking it. She's like, no, nah, this angle wouldn't be as good. It's why, you know, it's in my, you know, got to get from there and everything. The, the bit where she called her fiance the morning after was very funny. Again, great comedy beat. It was it, probably not realistic at all. Of but course. Of the course funniest not. Yeah. way to handle all those things. You know, I, the, the moment yeah. that really hammered it in, in for me was, I don't remember when she was coming home, but she was coming home for something and she walked into the gate and oof of their house and sort of had to open it up. Oh, because she was running. Because oh, because her car broke down. And I had to run, run the rest of the way to tell you a, sit- a sitcom trope. Oh, my car broke down and I'm running. Why are you coming off screen so tired or off stage so tired? Oh, oh I just had to get the news out. Oh, so th- th- things are just happening in Lucy's life. Little, you know, hiccups that, uh, that create these beats and stuff. But we also had mm-hmm. a, her serious moment where she is running lines for a scene 
where it's talking about Fred and Ethel's marriage and or something I think and uh, the lines just happen to coincide with where she is in her real life and she looks at the script and she realizes the words that she's saying are the words that she wants to vocalize to Desi and those are her words coming out of her mouth and not Lucille Arnez's or, or Lucille uh, Ricardo sorry it is, it is Lucille uh, Lucy Balls. She walks outside in the rain and she turns around and she looks at the house that she's created and the story that they've wrote for themselves and it fades over with the set of the studio, her little happy studio place. And she's like, I wanted to, and that, that's when we had that 2 a.m. call. But what did you think when she walked out in the rain? Did you say, God damn it, Sorkin, you hack. You did a rain scene or did you think, Yes, yes, Lucy, you walk in that rain like I did. Um, I don't know that I had either of those thoughts. Oh, maybe I was just so aware of it. Maybe it's because I love walking in the rain so much. Whenever it happens in a movie, it feels so ridiculous. But I'm like, no, I do that. I get that. Yeah. I get the desire I mean, to be out there. It it felt very movie tropey, but that that's fine. It's a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I think it was more the showing up to work at to showing up to work and then calling everyone into work at two a.m. That was really the but like, not Ricky. Really, guys. And, really? But again, because it's not about the opening. It's about your marriage, isn't it? Uh, uh, Vivian and Bill both know that. Mm-hmm. No, it's about the opening, and you know what? She did solve the opening, so she did, and it is better. And mm-hmm. uh, Frawley, you know, of course, uh, gives her that at the end. Um, do you know that Bill we Frawley should... had a musical album called Bill Frawley Sings the Old Ones, where he sang standards? No. Is is he Seth MacFarlane? For, like, is he the same I'm person as Seth MacFarlane? I'm going to look this up. While, while we're doing this, I'm going to look this up and, and send you and give okay. you a live reaction to some of these. Okay, yeah. Um, I want to talk about the runner with Desi cheating. We haven't really talked about oh, that much. Oh, that's true. We haven't. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting how this was this was stuck in the script basically they keep having the same conversation over and over again you were on that boat all night yes i was on the boat all night really like are you cheating on me no and and he she keeps bringing it up and then after her like after desi's big speech where she's vindicated and the press are writing about how she's not a communist she confronts him again and i found the execution of that scene while also being very stereotypical sorkin i just found it really effective yes yeah, I agree. I, I see, and I was interested by the fact that we never see him cheat. We, it's not about like following his conquests with these other women and these things. No, it's just unknown, and it's like an open secret too. Like everyone else, but her is acknowledging it. Like they're all coming up to her being about, oh, this is the this is the Desi problem, right? Oh, this is about Desi. Oh, this is because Desi's cheating on you, and you know she is so good at playing the role of mm-hmm. the perfect you know the, the perfect wife but the Amer- the american housewife i like i like to yeah. do my laundry sometimes even though we have you know a housemaid because i you know i like laundry mm-hmm. um you know once i was a woman who did laundry kind of you know that that sort of thing um yeah and her repeating the line about the picture is six months ago. I was there when it was taken. Like, like the, she kind of gets that down to like, as if it's, she's running a line from her show. She's just able to sort of parrot that anytime anyone brings it up. But, but yeah, the, the reveal of her pulling out the, the, the lipstick with the napkin 
and him and him having the explanation for it and then her pulling the second one out yeah. and and I just that one really got me it really got me in the gut because I it 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 spoke to oh he did this to have a cover story for her when she brought it up with him it's just as much like crafting as if he had put that much energy into loving Lucy as he did to covering up his philandering, you know, what, what a, what a relationship, you know, it could have been. Yeah. Um, we've been with the Ricardos. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Uh, Um, I have a couple other notes, which are mostly just other Sorkinisms that I noticed. Go for it. Um, so yeah, I mentioned before Lucy reading the article while Vivian's protesting and she keeps reading the article. That's one. Um, I'll bet you my paycheck versus your paycheck, which is very similar to a line from the West Wing. Um, um, Toby says, I'll bet you all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets. Um, Shoe money tonight. Yes. Um, she, at one point, she says that Vivian could blo- is going to blow the doors off of this place, which is another oh, sort of yeah. Good show. Good show. Good show. Good show. The, like, the, the scene there. of them. You got it in there. The scene of the three of them standing there just saying good show to one another. That was, that was honestly, that was in the trailer for this movie. And that was part of why I assumed this would just be, he'd just become like a parody of himself was just people standing around saying good show to each other. was like uh, my nightmare. That's, that's Mike Lou Network um, back. Sorkin's back, baby. He's on his game. <laughs> um. Also just the fact that like Lucy's point about, the opening of the show where she's where she where her husband isn't gonna be tricked by the fact that she's naming all of these men the audience is not stupid yes that is that is a huge point in studio 60 and it's also someone it's, it's again it's like it's like in molly's game where she's sticking to her pendants to, to protect her own name it's like it doesn't matter if it's funny it's not right yes and 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 no one agrees, right? Mm-hmm. Because 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 everyone else is crazy, and then she loses because they say it. They say that they sh- they went with the 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 scene where she's you know listing off the names while her eyes are covered. But that that felt again. It was just like oh, this is just like Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin looking out straight from the camera into my eyes exactly. to say this. The audience is not stupid. Meet them where they this are. This is my thesis. This is my thesis about uh, the yeah. history of television. And everything. Um, yeah. Also, lastly. They bought a ranch in Chatsworth. If they had a ranch in Chatsworth, which is very nice part of the valley, but very far from anything else, no wonder they all went crazy. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> oh, I I will make sure that that's where I'll settle late in life, so that I can go crazy out on the California hills uh, with my red yeah. hair. Um, I I have a fondness for for Lucy of this era. I do want to just briefly talk about old lucy and lucy aging if you there's no one who's funnier as you see them rapidly deteriorating throughout their career on there but i just love how like when she got older she just would come out and basically be like (laughs) "Ah, what do you people want Ah, thank you yes that was funny Ah." and call my shot now i'm gonna work on an old lucille that's definitely gonna be if i ever do i know you don't i know you hate this rufal it'll be my snatch game character is old old lucille ball because she's just such a fun crank to deal with. oh there's so much footage of of like the roasts and everything and i'm pretty sure there was like a desi and lucy they did their own like comedy roast thing too 
uh, at some point. I used to see these these infomercials all the time growing up for uh, the com you know the roasts of Dean Martin and Laughing and all these infomercials that sure I YouTube highlight reels hadn't been invented yet so if I wanted to watch comedy and just clips of good comedy I'd watch the best of of the Carol Burnett show had I seen the Carol Burnett show mm -hmm. no but I've seen the best of the Carol Burnett show infomercial twenty times so I know I know what yep. the best bits are now. Well, you know, you know, five seconds from each of the best exactly, bits. and like I know three of the best bits, and right? I know a lot of bits of of uh, Harvey Corman and Vicky Lawrence and and all of them saying these were funny bits, and when we did them, they were funny. Yeah, um, kind of like kind of like the writers, the writing, the writer structures within this. Uh, you know what? Maybe that's why it felt weird. Is it felt like a time life infomercial where they're like. Oh, this is the best of the, the Ricardos. You know, when we wrote this scene, uh, it was so funny. And then they just show you the five-second clip of them listing off the names with her eyes covered and the audience laughing. Yep, cuts back to that's 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 the energy. That's where it goes wrong is when it dips into that yeah. energy. Do you think it would have been more effective if instead of restaging those scenes with with Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem in the cast, they just intercut with the with the the actual episodes of the show? No, because I like they they basically do that at the end. The the last shot is it pulling out of the top of the studio, and then it reverts to the filmed version of the actual show. Yeah, I um, it would be different. It would feel more like a mini series. I, I I would I would find that more interesting if this was a longer mini series and it was meant more to be a like trying to think of how to do this. Almost like a more Ken Burnsian, like, okay, we're going to have mm -hmm. some reenactment of these things. But, yes, we're also going to show you archival footage of stuff at the Yeah, ground. yeah. But I, for this sake, no, because I think I would have been – all it would have reinforced is how different the actors and the actresses are from what's on there and how difficult it is to recreate comedy in a recreation setting. I think it would have done more harm than good for the structure of this film. And especially because sure. they only really focus on one one episode, you know, we're not really going. That, into but it. but they show they show a lot of clips from other episodes. I mean, that's fair. They get we do the grape something scene is is she is envisioning that and she's picturing that, and we do see some errant clips of it. No, I I guess it didn't bother me. I it didn't bother me, and, and okay. I'd, I'd have to see it to kind of get it. But my feeling is it would bother me to have that direct comparison. Because it would pale. Mm -hmm. It would just pale. It would pale in comparison to the real clips. Like, you can't be as yeah. funny as Lucy. Um, I am I am going to go watch, at some point, the documentary that Amy Poehler made about uh, Desi and Lucy. It's also, on, it's also on Amazon Prime. Oh, I have not heard of this. Yeah. I would love yeah, to see it was, that. Yeah, because that was one of the things where this movie came out, and then that documentary, I think, came out the same time. Um, and it's like, why, why does this movie exist when we have this actually good documentary? But, yeah. And it's, it's like Studio 60 versus 30 Rock. The Amazon just said, give us yeah. all the Ricardo stuff you can. We'll just throw throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's all of my thoughts about being the Ricardos. I do want to talk a little bit about the end of the Sorkin yeah. streak. So we've we've been on this journey for a long time now. It's been it's been months. Mm -hmm. Um we started at we started at a few good men. We ended here at being the Ricardos. You've gotten a very comprehensive overview of the works of Aaron Sorkin. What what are your thoughts? Sorkin's my boy. I think we are kindred spirits in many ways. I think 
I understand his point of view in terms of media and its power and its influence and how it can and should and is used. I find his his writing about the struggle of being an artist and what it means to be creative and what it means to be sort of like misunderstood by outsiders. A lot, a lot of the people, you know, if you think about it, a lot of it is like, oh, it's people inside of industry and, and a lot of times the, the, the enemies are the people outside the industry who just don't understand. And it's not that they're like antagonists because there's being, you know, specifically that way. It's just they don't know any better of it. If you think about that being the American public in the West Wing or the literal audience viewers within um, Studio 60 or Sports Night, the newsroom, you know, literally, you know, like that on there. Um, you know, a, a, a writer doth have a heavy hand sometimes. Um, and it is certainly easy to tell what he thinks about his stuff. Is it always the most smoothly written? No. But I do like my analogy earlier when I know what I'm going to get when I come see something by Sorkin. It's very similar with playwrights. When a playwright starts writing a certain amount of work and they have an oeuvre, you do just get to know their tics and, and what they like and what makes them them. You know, you go to a Van Gogh and you look at it because you know what a Van Gogh is going to be, but it's different when you see it in person. There's texture, there's color, even though you know the, the understanding of it. You don't go to, you know, to it and you're sort of like, maybe you're going to get mad by it or something or, or those things. But I, I guess it's sort of like understanding the, the artist helps understand their work. And I'm a firm believer in, it's, it's an interesting conversation. Um, uh, last night, within the, the timeline of when we're recording this, I talked a bit about the, the Gaylor stuff. Um, but what I found interesting about it was the stepping back of people who interpret a writer's work or a work as having one answer or a solution or like there's a message here in a clear way and I need to figure out what they're trying to say so I can understand it from that context and putting it there. And there's also where it's just is what it is and it is what it means to you. And so it's more about like just how I feel versus what's on there. Sorkin, I think, is an interesting person in that if you want to look more into the artist and why they're writing it on there, it does help enhance it. But I think he does a good job at making his work presentable for people who just want it to be sort of what it is to themselves and aren't thinking that hard about what's the artist's intent here. What is it that they're trying to like package it and all that um i think when he's in best he does a great balance of that i think when he's at his worst is because you you need to know about you need to know sorkin you need to know him and sort of his reasoning again theater kid once i unlocked that right away with studio 60 and that being sort of the driver force on here it made everything else make sense the rest of the stuff on the Sorkin streak, when filtered through that, I kind of got, this is this is where this artist is coming from and, and understanding that he's a screenwriter, but he's also a, a, a playwright, a theater guy. And that's maybe where, you know, I, he's just maybe my boy because he's in my wheelhouse. I just, I understand that rhythm and cadence, but yeah, I like him. I, I, I you know, 
I hope hopefully he's not a super problematic person in, in real life. I don't believe I. He's he's, he's he's mostly harmless. He's got some opinions that that are like old man yells at cloud. Yeah. Nothing really egregious. Um. Yeah. Um. I'm glad you kept talking because I was about to go into my two hour um my two hour uh filibuster about Gaylor because I could talk about that for hours on <laughs> exactly. end. And I don't I don't really like your characterization of the Gaylor movement, but I'm gonna move on because we have to end the podcast. Well, I was just um, no, I was just saying in my context of it was made me think about that. It was just that was the conversation that spurred. We're, we're getting into it. We're, you do not want to go down this road with me, Missy. You have to go to sleep soon. I, I, it's only 9 p.m. out here. I will talk for three hours about Gaylor. Well, I, I'm going to ask you the same question, actually, though. And you're now having been a Sorkin uh, fan beforehand, mm-hmm. some of these works being just some of your favorite media in general. The West Wing, I think you yep. said, is just your favorite TV show. Um, ah, it's, it's oh, up it's there. Okay, it's up sorry. there. It is, it is one of your favorite TV shows. Uh, yeah. What did what what are you, what new things have you learned from Sorkin, and also have learned from my reaction to Sorkin as someone who's really new mm-hmm. to this this person? Yeah. Well, everything everything is theater. Everything is theater. That's what I've learned. <laughs> not not like not like all oh, the world's a stage, but but like everything is put through the analogy of working in the theater. That's even the stuff that isn't the theater isn't television is put through that analogy, the West wing, et cetera, Steve jobs. Um, that, so that's one. I think, I think that I really do understand his, he's very good at writing compelling conversations yes. and dialogue between people. And as long as those are put into a context or a situation that is meaningful in some way, either to the characters or just in the world generally, I think that is where he shines best. I do think he has faults, um, and I think he can get hung up on things a little too much. Um, I think maybe my concerns around him sort of being unable to write women were a little overstated based on, again, I, I don't feel like that's that's tr- that's that it wasn't overstated based on the newsroom, but he's written he's written compelling female characters after the newsroom, whereas I was worried he was never going to do that again. Um yeah, and I think I think I'm much more open to the idea of consuming new stuff from him, especially especially as it comes out now, especially after being the Ricardos. The fact that I didn't just completely hate being the Ricardos the way I expected to is really a positive sign. Like I like look as as fun as it is to scream about things I don't like, it I would rather feel okay and like I could watch that again even if I had to um, versus. This was this was dog shit. I'm just gonna yell about it for two hours. Like that's as fun as that is to listen to and do. Sometimes that's not what like the kind of mode I want to be in all oh, the yeah. time. So and and, um, and antithetical to the very nature of what we are trying to do with the podcast. Yes. We're not coming in here being like ready yes. to go again. That was the only one that both of us. I think also just based on cultural murmurings, I think a lot of people our age and the podcast that we listened to or the media we listened to didn't like it. And then got to it before kind of we had, and so I know I've heard a lot of different. I don't think things. they. I don't think they watched it. I think they they didn't like the idea of it. I well, I'll say then. Okay, so I know like podcast the ride. They actually watched it and covered it, and so I know they were okay. very down. So like I some of the stuff that I knew but I had forgotten was I I knew the specific about the J Edgar Hoover phone call. I I didn't realize that was the literal climax. Like that happens at the mm-hmm. very end and is like what yeah. we've been building up to not just like a thing that happens during the course of 
of it on there. I, I get now why it's so risible because that is such a weird. It's uh, Jagger Hoover being the savior of um, of uh, of of America there for a brief moment is like an insane position to put him in, but it's just very funny within the context. Yeah, on that, um, a, it's a sitcomy moment to do. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm. Thank you for putting me on to this. This was such a wonderful stumble upon thing that we sort of like did as a bit, but ended up actually being a really revelatory journey for me. Like I have a new, I, I have a new appreciation of a person that a lot of people have already liked, a lot of people have opinions on, that I had taken that and hadn't explored it myself. And that's what a lot of we, we learn in this podcast is us hearing other people's opinions and using that as a substitute for our own. And this, you know, took that away from me and made me force something that I, I, it wasn't that I wasn't looking forward to it. I just thought there was going to be so much more duds along the way. I thought it was going to mm -hmm. be, man, I, I am running across some stinkers and I got to like really drag myself through. I was expecting like some, how did this get made? You know, mm -hmm. like these are real well, bad, bad stuff. That's that's what because, I feel because like that's how people was for it, right? Because that's how people talk about a lot of these things. That's how people talk about Studio Sixty. Yeah. That is how people talk about being the Ricardos, right? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, uh, most media is a lot more inoffensive when you go to approach it, and it is usually that the stuff like this gets dropped because it's being compared to something else at the time that's like the pinnacle of what X, Y, or Z is. And so it's always like drubbed because criticism is done in the context of the time where, you know, something like Studio 60, it was being done in the context of post West Wing and also sort of the beginning of a lot of prestige drama uh, TV coming out. And and, and, subse and and subsequent with with 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. And, and that being, you know, the right on there, the a direct competitor in of itself for for and people realizing, hey, this, this is funny when it's funny. Um yeah, you know, it, yeah, yeah, it's just been good, and now I'm just sort of like, what do we, what do we, do, what do we do? What am I doing here now? What's we've we reached the last station? I realize I don't know where we've gotten off at. Okay, so before we before we get off the train, I do want to say, like we have for our other podcasts, I thought you were special. I want to I want to create a contingent where, um, if Sorkin writes another play oh, yes. and it gets put up somewhere. I would like I would like to commit both of us to go to that place and and see it in yes. person and you know record an episode of a podcast about it because I'm I'm genuinely curious. I don't know what he's working on. I have no idea what I he's can working tell on you honestly. What he's working on and I'm not sure when this is being done. Is is it theater? Is it is it a he's movie? Is it a is it TV? Piece. He is doing oh. a ah aha. He was doing Camelot, a rewrite of it that was moved to 2020, April this year, April this year. It was uh, supposed to be late last year, April this year. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to make an executive decision and say the next thing that he works on, let's go. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't have much interest in seeing Camelot, although, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious what the revived book is like, but the music in that show is just bad. it here's what i guess i'd be interested in is because a lot of people have uh oh this is interesting well i'm gonna just it tells you the revisions to broadway and what the difference is okay 
So the 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 contextual the contextual the contextual interest of Camelot is that it came around around the same time of the JFK presidency. So it is used that like the the parallels of what King Arthur is having to deal with in Camelot, a lot of people felt dealt with uh, the JFK White House so much that Camelot was the nickname for the Kennedy White House because and the relationship because it was it was just the most popular musical at that time. Uh, and I and I think maybe they named Chainlight Fifteen or something like that. I don't know. But um it had magic and sorts of like that. It was just the telling, you know, obviously of the King Arthur legend. So the first thing that we have to note on here is in the 2022 Broadway revival, the Aaron Sorkin Penn revision of the book excises all magic, making Merlin a sage and Morgan Le Fay a scientist, heralding the Age of Enlightenment and removing a different character, a magical character, um, from the book. And Morgan Le Fay's brother is going to be a glass maker. He's going to make glass tubes. Yes. The new book also underscores democracy and a more egalitarian society. Act one begins with Arthur's retinue alert, waiting for the arrival of Gonadier. Missy, this is your shit. This is your shit. You cannot tell me this is not your shit. I'm just saying you can't say this isn't your shit. By disembarking at the bottom of a hill instead of atop. Guinevere is more contemporary and cold to Arthur in their meeting. Instead of a top, no top shortage here. Sight encounter. Ah, okay. She seems do, she seems bound by duty to her marriage rather than love, and serves as an advisor to Arthur rather than a mere consort. Women get power. Despite this, uh, near the conclusion of Act Two, a tearful Guinevere admits to Arthur that she has loved him since their first meeting and wishes he could see himself the way that she has. The knights are mistrustful. Just, just imagine the walk and talk. She's a French in chainmail. Uh, Pelinor is an older knight who takes care of Merlin, who takes on Merlin's role as sage advisor. Arthur steps in as the final jester and is the one revived by Lancelot. It's real that Arthur has written Morgan Le Fay a letter every week for the past four years, despite never receiving a reply, begging her and more dread to live in the castle. Which I guess I don't know what that is. The long-standing faithfulness stirs Guinevere's jealousy and fear when Arthur pays Le Fay a visit as a result of a forged letter from Mordred. Lancelot, torn between his duty to Arthur and the knights and his forbidden love of Guinevere, agrees to guard her one final night before returning to France, where Arthur pays Le Fay a visit. Ah, makes me realize I, there's parts of the Arthur legend that I don't remember 100%, but... Yeah. I just... Oh, who's in it? Let me see who's going to be in this. I, I'm going to go see this. I don't know about you. I'm going to go see Burnap, this. Um, Philip Sue, Jordan Kelly. I don't know. Philippa Sue? Yeah. Amelie herself? Philippa Sue Amelie. She was in Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was in Hamilton. Oh, she, she was, was also in, in the, she yeah, was musical. she originated yeah. the Amelie musical, which I saw which I actually saw in Los Angeles and then it went to Broadway and closed in like a month or yeah. something. Ridiculous. Oh, and she was in Smash. Okay, I saw a lot of a lot of the gays love her for that, I'm sure. I'd say Hamilton, I think, is the one that I I had heard her name from. Okay. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, I wish I was more excited about it. I wish. Why is it a musical? Can you just do a play version of Camelot without the music? Is it? Do you want that to be the the, the contingent? Is that the next play that Sorkin writes? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I would go if I'm in. If this is going and we can get together to go see it, and it's like in New York, or like if a version you know comes to L.A. or something like that. If we can find a way to see this then sure i i'm open to seeing camelot it's just like oh i i am loath to make a trek specifically to go 
and see like there's music because I think I'm just like blah. But hey, a trip a trip to New York means I can see other Broadway shit. There might be something else that uh coincides with our sort of uh with hey if they have a Matrix musical that ever comes out first in line baby. Do do you think yeah. they'll ever approve a musical? Uh, um, no, That's I don't because. They've been pretty close to the vest about not doing anything outside of the Wachowski's um, involvement. And I think also now, like, with Matrix Resurrections having gone over the way it did, despite the fact that it's a fucking great movie, um, I don't know that we're going to get any new Matrix stuff for a while, unfortunately. I'm sure it'll be something where it's a... uh a redo or a lot of time has passed and it's sort of like you know like a blade runner you know 2049 kind of thing where although i think it's really i mean resurrections was long enough in between although not not nearly as long as like that time span between blade runner and and its sequel but 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 it's like a it's a it's a it's a legacy sequel yeah 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 as we always say to end the show good show good show alice Good show. But we need to work on the opening. We can get it right. I can blow glass tubes. 